Welcome, and thank you for listening to Grace Heritage Church Audio, building a household of faith on a foundation of grace. Visit us online at graceheritage.org. Please stay tuned after the message for more information. Um, third reason that I'm thankful for it is that um, he said a lot of the things that I would have liked to have said that I hadn't had time to say, and so I'm really appreciative of him unfolding that the superiority of the new covenant and also the glory of the old covenant because the, the, when we see this contrast between the old and new covenant, the more glorious we see the old covenant, the more we can appreciate the extreme glory of the new covenant by contrast because it's so much more glorious. So if, it's, if something is more glorious than something that's not glorious, it may not be very glorious. But if it's much more glorious than something that is glorious, it's very, very glorious. So that's, that's I think, part of the uh, point that he, he made that I wanted uh, to hear. And the third thing was um, he made some really good points that, that I'm going to capitalize on this morning. So that works out well, too. So thank you, John. Um, we have been studying uh, covenant theology from a, a confessional Baptist perspective. And I just want to share again with you this little diagram that we've all come to know and love. Um, and um, some of you may never want to see this again. But um, this just gives us sort of a basic visual perspective on, what, on the perspective we've been trying to teach that the Bible is structured by covenants. The two primary covenants are the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The, the Old Covenant... Um, was a, a law-based covenant that had a number of different purposes, but among those purposes was it was revealing and progressively preparing God's people for the new covenant. It pointed forward to the new covenant, although it did not deliver the things that the new covenant would deliver. And then the new covenant is made in Christ with his people, and um, it um, is the the ultimate manifestation of what we call theologically the covenant of grace. And uh, so that, we believe, is the basic covenant structure of Scripture and, and redemptive history. Um, today we're going to talk about an alternative view to this called dispensationalism. And I'm just kind of curious, how many of you know what dispensationalism is? Okay. All right. So uh, some of you may have never heard of it. I'm going to try to explain it a little bit and to give you a little bit of perspective. Um, if you've not heard of it, you may be going, why are we talking about this? And uh, I want to just kind of briefly say at the beginning, and then I'll talk about it more at the end, um, that this, the, the, these alternatives have an impact, first of all, on the way we view the, the church in God's plan. And so it does impact the way you orient yourself or align yourself to the church and and the way you see God's glory being play, being displayed in the church. That's one thing. Another thing is it impacts the way we read scripture, particularly the Old Testament and how we uh, are able to apply the Old Testament to our lives today as New Covenant believers. So I think these things are important because um, a great deal of scripture is um, impacted by how we how we uh, come out on this particular issue. So, what is dispensationalism? I have said that said it already, but it's an it's an alternate system for understanding the unfolding plan of God in history. 
Um, it just so happened that, um, well, uh, let me say this first, that dispensationalism is a very popular system today in evangelicalism. It is probably the dominant system of understanding God's unfolding plan. And most of us have been touched by it uh, in some way or another, probably in ways that you don't even realize because it's so common. It is ubiquitous. That means all over the place, okay, on the radio and on television. Um, it has influenced lots of popular notions of the end times. And in fact, um, I think a lot of people don't even realize that that is the viewpoint that they hold. They may have never heard the word, but they just have picked that up by listening to radio preachers and, and so forth. It just so happened that um, this past week uh, I got an email just randomly arrived in my inbox and I have no idea why, but it had this in it. This was a poster advertising the opening of a movie, Left Behind, which opened this weekend. And, all, and most of us know that this is actually the story of the life of Henry Gew, whose, <laughs> whose parents left him behind in Auburn. That just occurred to me this morning. So. <laughs> um, sad story. Um, but uh, anyway, starring Nicolas Cage um, as Henry. Um, <laughs> anyway, no, but this, this is a, a movie that just came out apparently. I didn't even know it was coming. It's, I guess it's a reboot of the Left Behind series, um, probably done with more car crashes and more CGI and so forth. And so therefore much better than previous ones. Um, but this movie and the whole book series, Left Behind book series, is based on a dispensational view of history. Um, the, the popular notion of the rapture that most people probably hold to in evangelicalism is based on a dispensational view of history. The, in some cases, the support for Israel as a, a political position, as a as a modern political entity um, is sometimes driven by dispensationalism with the idea that Israel, modern Israel, is somehow God's chosen people. And that that is a justification for um, supporting Israel as a political entity. Now, there may be many other reasons for doing that that have absolutely nothing to do with dispensationalism. I'm not trying to make a statement on that particular issue. I'm just saying some people, it's a, it's a foregone conclusion has nothing to do with their political views. It's their, it's their view of dispensationalism that dictates that. Okay. So, um, so you're probably going, okay, I'm starting to hear some of this. I understand this. Let me just be a little bit more specific. Um, as I said, it is just almost, I, I saw a list of, of radio and TV preachers that, that hold to this view. And it's pretty uh, intimidating in a way because of the number. I mean, you're going... Why should I listen to Stan Reeves when all these people hold to dispensationalism? I'm not saying you should listen to Stan Reeves. I, I think, first of all, you should listen to our forefathers, our, uh, our Baptist forefathers, um, in, uh, as more, way more authoritative than me. But hopefully we're also going to look at the scriptures and see what the scriptures say directly. I think that there are many people today who have, for various historical reasons, come into this system and then 
develop their view or their framework for understanding Scripture in a way that that becomes this unquestioned thing, and then they operate within that system. And so I'm going to name some names here, and I'm not doing that to, to say anything negative about them so much. Um, in fact, most of them, as I reflected on, the, on it, they are such students of the Word and faithful to the, to the text of Scripture that they're often, their teaching is often better than the system is. They often say the right things about text, even though their system might not really say that. And uh, so, so I find that, that um, just because of their commitment to Scripture, they end up being much better than that. So let me just name a few names that you would rec definitely recognize. John MacArthur is one of the main teachers. Um, highly respect the man. Uh, he's written lots of good stuff and, and um, has been a, a great influence in, in evangelicalism. <clears throat> Um, but he's a dispensationalist. Chuck Swindoll is another one. Charles Stanley. Those are just three of, of many that I could name. Um, we can think about certain uh, various institutions that are committed to dispensationalism. Master's Seminary, Dallas Seminary, Moody Bible Institute. Okay. Um, some of the pro probably one of the main reasons that dispensationalism today is as popular as it is is because of the Schofield Reference Bible. Everybody heard of that? Um, it was one of the very first study Bibles, you might say. It had, it had commentary interspersed in with the, the text of Scripture. And so that was kind of a new idea. Well, I wouldn't say it was a new idea, but it became a, pop, a popular study Bible. became so widespread, and so many people you know, saw those notes right there, right beside Scripture, or right below Scripture, and that took on for them a great deal of authority. Um, C.I. Schofield was an early teacher of dispensationalism. Charles Ryrie was another one. And then there was a Ryrie study Bible that also reflected the same or a similar perspective. So there are a lot of people out there that believe this. And a lot of, a lot of uh, godly teachers, people who have in many uh, ways done great service to the church. Um, but in this particular respect, I think we would need to take issue with their teaching, okay? So what does dispensationalism teach? Okay, um, there, This is really hard because, and especially today, it's, it's becoming more and more varied in what dispensationalists teach. There's lots of different subgroups within dispensationalism. There's progressive dispensationalism. There's classic dispensationalism, and it goes on. Um, but I would say that there are, there are two key commitments or two key distinctives that um, distinguish dispensationalism from other systems. And so those two perspectives are, uh, first of all, that Israel and the church are separate entities and they will be so for all eternity. Okay, so that's number one. Second one is that the Bible should be interpreted literally in the same way that we would interpret any other book. Sometimes this is referred to as the grammatical historical uh, approach to interpretation. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I've, I've scratched my head for a while trying to figure out which of these is actually more fundamental. But the thing is they kind of feed on each other. And, um, and I, I think in a way the, the literal interpretation is probably the underlying uh, commitment but then it immediately leads, in a sense, to the, the first conclusion 
And then that first conclusion becomes the framework for developing a whole system. And there are all kinds of differences and implications and things that are, you know, just are different based on that particular thing. And we're not going to be able to talk about them all. And I'm not going to talk about end time stuff, even though that's a big feature of dispensationalism. Lots of different implications that I'm not going to be able to talk about. I'm just trying to go right to the core of these two things and talk about these two things, particularly in light of um, this covenant theology that we've been studying. Um, the, in the same way we would interpret the I, let, um, I don't know that, I've, that it's exactly stated like that, but pretty much. And I'm gonna, I'll give you a quote when I get to that point when I start to unpack it. Okay, so first of all, I want to talk about this first one. <clears throat> this is a quote from Charles Ryrie in his book, Dispensationalism Today. The dispensationalist believes that throughout the ages, God is pursuing two distinct purposes, one related to the earth with earthly people and earthly objectives involved, which is Judaism, while the other is related to heaven with heavenly people and heavenly objects, which is Christianity. Okay, so you can see a very sharp distinction being made between Israel and the church there. Dispensationalists often accuse covenant theology advocates of, of uh, teaching something that they call replacement theology. And replacement theology means replacing Israel with the church. That Israel was God's people for a while and then they get set aside and then now the church comes in as the replacement people of God. Almost as though God set aside his first wife and then remarried or something like that. So um, that term is a sort of a controversial term because it's not one that um, covenant theologians would um, agree with. The second one is that the Bible should be interpreted literally, call, uh, sometimes a gr called a grammatical historical approach. Um, this is what Ryrie says, the scriptures cannot be regarded as an illustration of some special use of language so that in the interpretation of these scriptures some deeper meaning of the words must be sought. So he would say that it's to be uh, treated like um, like you would like words the way they're used in any other kind of writing and what he would call the normal use of words, which does not, even though we call it literal, would not um, rule out the use of symbols and figures of speech and stuff like that, because he would say that's the way you would interpret other books as well. You, th th there would be uh, figures of speech and symbols and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. which, which what now? Oh, well, <laughs> that's another question. I don't know that they take a position on which English Bible would be. I think that generally they would have the same basic perspective on, on translations as any other evangelical would, that you know, ultimately the Word of God is the original, and that um, you know, to the degree that copies reflect that and to, to the degree that translations reflect that, that they... They are the word of God. So I don't think there would be a real difference there. <clears throat> okay. And part of this is that then that um, they would say that meaning, the meaning of passages should not be spiritualized. That's one of their very common criticisms of covenant theology is that covenant theology spiritualizes certain passages of scripture. 
And then they would also say that the New Testament never reinterprets the Old Testament in such a way that it changes the meaning of what it meant in the Old Testament. Okay. So those two things, um, I think, kind of support each other. Um, so I wanted to quote this passage because this kind of shows the, the essential relationship of how you go really from number two to number one. In Genesis 17, 8, it says, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Okay, so they look at that and they say, this is an unconditional promise of God. And that unconditional promise included the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession. If you take that literally, according to them, then that promises to Israel... As, as, the off, as the physical offspring of Abraham, the land of Canaan forever. Okay. Now the reality is, and you can look at other passages, especially in the prophets, and other promises are made that kind of flesh all that out. But the reality is that um, those passages have not been fully fulfilled. Okay. Literally fulfilled. I mean... Israel, unless you count unbelieving Israel now that lives in the Middle East in this uh, formerly the land of Canaan, as a fulfillment of that, then you would not see that it's that you would say it's not fulfilled yet. So they cannot be fulfilled by the church because the church is not literally the physical offspring of Abraham. So Israel as a physical people must maintain some sort of existence through history, and then ultimately be brought together again as a nation in the land so that these promises can be fulfilled to them. That's the only way it would work if God is going to be true to his promises according to their understanding of this and other promises. Okay, That's, and so, so that is why then there needs to be a distinction between Israel and the church is because the promises here are not to the church, they're to Israel as the physical offspring of Abraham. And since they haven't been fulfilled yet, they, they have to be brought back together so that that can be fulfilled. Okay? And then because it's everlasting, there has to be a distinction throughout all eternity. So that's kind of the gist of where, of where all this comes from. And there's lots and lots more that could be said about that. Now, those are, sort of, those are the two key things. And there are lots of little side things. Um, dispensationalism is based on the term dispensation. And dispensation is just another word for administration or economy, which basically means the way, things God, the way God sets things up to operate in a certain uh, age. Um, some of you may be familiar with charts like this. This is a pretty famous chart from a famous, rather famous book by a guy named Clarence, Clarence Larkin. And uh, I think it's something that I can't remember. I meant to look up the name, but it's something like the, gr the greatest dispensational book of charts or something like that. It's, it's kind of self-promoting book title. But really, it's an the guy had an amazing ability to put together all these charts. And it's a whole book full of them. And I think I actually may have a copy somewhere under a bed somewhere. And, and that's not because it, I'm, I, well, I don't consult it, but... Um, but it's huge. It's really big, so it's not something you can easily fit on a shelf. Um, and uh, anyway, so this shows, I think dispensationalists would, most dispensationalists see 
seven different dispensations or ages which are, are quite distinct from one another, each of which has a, um, a certain principle in it for which man is responsible. And then within that time, man fails in that responsibility. Then God judges him for failing in that responsibility and then begins a new dispensation. And this goes on until um, the, the eternal state is ushered in. <clears throat> so early dispensationalists sometimes emphasize these different ages and the different responsibilities so much that at least outsiders concluded that they believed in different ways of salvation in these different ages. And that's still a point of controversy um, as far as what some of the earlier dispensationalists believed. Basically, no modern mainstream dispensationalist would ever say that there are different ways of salvation. So I don't want to propagate that misunderstanding. They, I, I'm not sure that it's consistent with their perspective, but, but at least they would say there's only one way of salvation. Um, sometimes I, I, I'm not entirely satisfied with the way they describe that because they might say something like, that the way of salvation is faith in God's revelation in that period rather than faith in the coming Messiah. But again, that's probably per, uh, dependent on the individual teacher and so forth. Okay. So now we're at the point, I hope I've given you at least the basics of what it's about. And I want to look at how Baptist covenant theology sheds light on these two issues. So first of all, we're going to look at how Baptist covenant theology sheds light on the biblical relationship of Israel to the church. So I've already told you how, how uh, a dispensationalist would view that relationship. They're totally separate or they may be you know, related in some way, but, but they're, they have a different identity. So from the perspective of Baptist covenant theology, to summarize what we've already been saying, basically, or the implications of that system that we've been looking at, that the New Testament church is a continuation of the Old Testament people of God, but with universal scope and expanded blessings. So there's a continuity between the two, but with universal scope and expanded blessings. The distinction could be compared to the progression from a child to an adult. Okay, that's one way to think of the relationship. In fact, Galatians 4, 3 through 5, you don't need to turn there. But it says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So there's this progression from this childhood, slave-like childhood, where you have to have guardians and people watching over you and lots of rules and regulations to the fullness of receiving the inheritance as full-grown sons. So there's a, th th that's not two different groups of people there being talked about there. It's the same, it's the, same, it's the child who grew up, okay? So the, the figure that Paul is using there is of a child not replacing him with someone else, but the child who was the same child who grew up into a man a full-grown man with a full uh, inheritance of, a, of an adult, okay? Well, the second thing that we could say about the relationship of Israel to the church is that Old Testament Israel served as a type for the people of God of all ages, okay? 
And we can see that played out in so many different ways. We see Old Testament sacrifices serving as a type of Christ. Um, we see that the, both the physical seed of, of Abraham and the spiritual seed of Abraham kind of coexist at the same time there. And the same terms are used to describe both in such a way that the physical seed reminds us of the reality of the spiritual seed. Circumcision outwardly um, teaches us something about spiritual circumcision, something that goes on in the heart. Um, lots of there, uh, the, the exodus um, of God's people from, from Egypt, God's salvation of people from Egypt is a, is a picture of the rescue of sinners from bondage to sin into the, the um, freedom of the gospel and of Christ. Yes, right, right. And I'm not quoting passages because you have to look all over, all over the New Testament for that. Um, but we can, I think we can also say that the relationship of um, the relationship of the old of the of the Old Testament Israel to the church is like a caterpillar to a butterfly. I like that one actually. Because a caterpillar, the butterfly is not a different animal from the caterpillar, is it? It's not why, like while you're sleeping, somebody goes in and swaps out that caterpillar for this beautiful butterfly. The caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It's the same organism. And yet there is a massive transformation that takes place from this, you know, yucky little caterpillar to this beautiful butterfly. Very, very different in a way. And yet there's identity and continuity. So we do not believe that the church replaces Israel, but we believe that it is the Gentiles are incorporated into a refined and spiritually renewed Israel. So specifically, let's think about the, the um, passage in Genesis 17. Let's go back to that. Just let me remind you of that again. So how do we understand this passage? If you remember when we talked about the God's covenant with Abraham, what we discovered was that there are actually two covenants in one. And we didn't make that up because Galatians 4 explicitly teaches that. It says specifically, these are two covenants. Okay, so the two covenants, as we look through the various passages in Genesis where God unfolds his promises to Abraham, you can see two, two different emphases in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. In Genesis 15, we have an unconditional covenant where Abraham is asleep, having this vision, and God cuts open the pieces of the or he cuts open the pieces. God walks through them saying, I'm taking on the, all the responsibilities, all the curses, if it fails, of this covenant. Abraham does nothing. Abraham commits to nothing. It's purely God's promise. It's an unconditional covenant promise. Then we get over into Genesis 17, though, and we see a different situation. He promises things and many of the things in the same terms. But then he says, and this is my covenant with you. You must circumcise uh, all the males in your household down through the generations. OK, that is a conditional covenant. And we see the, those two sharply contrasted in um, Galatians chapter 4. So let me just remind you, I've shown you this before. 
But this is a comparison of those two covenants that are unpacked for us in Galatians chapter 4. In one of them, we have children of flesh. The other one, we have children of promise. One of them is centered upon Mount Sinai, the place of the law. The other one is centered upon Jerusalem above, which is, symbolizes redemption. One is a place of slavery. The other one is a place of freedom. One is ironically fruitless. The other is ironically fruitful. One's persecuting, the other's persecuting. One's temporary, one's eternal. Um, one has no inheritance and one a glorious inheritance. Okay, so I, I first question whether, um, or uh, I guess take issue with whether Genesis 17:8 is to be considered an unconditional covenant the way dispensationalists do. Um, it's conditional circumcision. And we saw that circumcision actually is simply the beginning point of an obligation to obey the whole law. It's taken up into the Mosaic law so that they, they are obligated to the whole law, not just to circumcision at the beginning. And so it is a, it is a uh, law-based or a conditional covenant. And we also saw that it's one that they did not, and John made very clear this morning, that they did not keep. They didn't, know, they didn't fulfill the conditions of the covenant. They had ultimately no right to the land as an everlasting possession. Okay? Um, <clears throat> so there's a distinction between these two covenants, one conditional, one unconditional, that God makes to, to Abraham. Um, and also remember that the, the purpose of the covenant God made with Abraham was temporary. It had a specific purpose to it. It was to bring the, the Savior to God's people. It was to point to the offspring to come. That was its purpose. Uh, when the offspring came, the purpose was fulfilled. According to this, the covenant made the, with the physical seed, symbolized by Ishmael, was temporary. By design. It was temporary. And, and John brought that out very clearly this morning. The covenant that, that was made, the old covenant was temporary. Um, it was passing away. Um, it was to be replaced by an everlasting covenant. So it's not, not intended to, be, to last forever. Adam? If the covenant was temporary, why does it use the word everlasting? Um, well, my understanding is that the word everlasting doesn't necessarily mean uh, eternal on an infinite timeline, but lasting throughout the period for which it was intended. Okay, so it's never going to fall away until it is done in the uh, period for which it was intended. The same kind of language is used for the, the, uh, le the priests and Levites and the sacrificial system and all that. And we, I think we see pretty clearly those are not to, meant to be eternal in the way we use that word. Okay. Um, but even if it did mean that, it was not a, an unconditional covenant, so they didn't fulfill it. They didn't get it. Okay. So, um, so that's, according to Galatians 4, the slave woman was cast out with her natural born son. It ended. Okay, that covenant ended. The true offspring has come. Jesus has come. And Israel failed to meet the condition of the covenant. So whether it was truly intended or promised to be eternal or not, they failed. But Jesus didn't fail. Okay, that's the other side. All the promises are fulfilled in Christ, who is the true and faithful offspring. So if we're going to 
let's not miss this. That if we want to take literally the promise to the physical offspring, the only one who actually earned what was promised was Jesus. He is the literal physical offspring of Abraham. He is the, uh, the seed that was promised. Galatians 3.16, which we've looked at many times. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say unto offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, that, by the way, and I'll talk about this later, is not changing the meaning of Genesis 17, 8. That's not changing it. That's not spiritualizing it. That's taking seriously what the New Testament says is the meaning of the passage originally. Okay, using New Testament light on what was already the meaning in the Old Testament, but may not have been completely clear until it was clarified by the apostles with divine authority, that this is what it means. Okay. Jesus was circumcised and Jesus kept the whole law. He was born under the law. He kept the whole law on our behalf. He was the, in a sense, he was the last man standing when all the offspring had failed and had broken the covenant. Jesus did not. He fulfilled the covenant. He was the last offspring to meet all the conditions and to whom all the promises will be fulfilled. And so the only way to receive these promises now is by union with Christ. Okay. Um, he will receive the land of Canaan. Did you know that? He will receive the whole new earth and the land of Canaan is just part of it. He will be the ruler of it all. He will inherit it all. That will be his reward for his faithfulness and his obedience and he will rule over his people for all eternity so if you want to look at it as an everlasting possession literally i think that's fine because jesus will own it and we will enjoy it with him as his people in union with him second corinthians 120 says for all the promises of god find their yes in him that's how these things are fulfilled is in him that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Okay, now let's turn to, we're going to do a really quick thing because I'm taking way too long here. Ephesians chapter 2. Um, let's look at verses 11 to 22. I'm going to try to speed talk and y'all try to speed think. <laughs> speed listen. Ephesians 2 verse, starting in verse 11. This is concerning the, the continuity of Israel and the church. So be listening for that particular issue. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, 
and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now I would say for the most part, it's fairly self-evident that that teaches a continuity between Israel and the church. This is not a replacement of taking away one people and putting another one there in its place. It says that they were once alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, but now they are brought near. What is it they brought near to? Commonwealth of Israel. They're associated with this group of people who have been um, uh, given the, the identity of the people of God. It says, you who were once far off have been brought near. What have they been brought near? They've been brought near to everything that was just said, the, the things they were far away from, the existing commonwealth of Israel. Okay, the covenants of promise, the to hope and to God. These are the things they were brought near to, things that already were there. It says in verse, I mean, uh, it says, uh, verse 13, they were made um, one new man. One, they were both made one, one man in place of the two. So they're, they, they're brought together into one New Testament reality. Okay, this is not a replacement. This is a, 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 a merging of... Um, those who were far off with those who were near. They are now fellow citizens of what? Of the commonwealth of Israel. What else would it be citizens of? He's used this language of a political reality. He's using that as kind of a, uh, um, a figure of the way to think about Israel as, as a political entity. So he uses the word commonwealth. And now he says they're citizens of that. So again, I'm using that same figure. What are they citizens of? It's the commonwealth of Israel with the saints, those who are already the saints, those who are believing Israel. So the church, the Gentiles are brought in to an existing reality and both of them are uh, saved in Christ. All right. Um, now, um, okay, I'm going to have to do a little triage here. Um, let me just let you give you a homework assignment. If you would read uh, Romans chapter 11, verses 16 through 24. This is a figure of an olive tree. And in this figure, the root of the olive tree is, the, is Abraham and the promises to the fathers. Okay? The natural branches of the tree are Israel. And he says that, it's, that branches have been cut off of the tree and you Gentiles are like wild olive trees whose branches have been grafted in. Okay. The figure is not, I cut down one tree and planted another one in its place. But the figure is this tree has been pruned of its unbelieving branches. Okay. That's where we go from old covenant to new covenant. Now the basis of covenant relationship with God is not just an outward physical thing, but an inward reality. So the, the outward branches that are unbelieving are cut off. Okay? 
Now you who are believing have been grafted in. Doesn't that perfectly fit the idea of an ongoing reality that, uh, that now is brought in in the new covenant and belief is the basis of connection to Abraham and to the promises? It's not two different entities. It's one entity. Right. That's what I was saying. Didn't cut that one down, put another one in there. It's not two trees. It's one tree. Single root, a single tree. Some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Okay. So now, in the next three minutes, I'm going to talk about a major topic. <laughs> um, and that is the, how B Baptist Covenant theology sheds light on how we interpret the Bible. So we agree with our dispensational friends that the Bible uses words in ordinary ways to communicate. That is, the meaning isn't encoded or hidden beneath the uh, meaning into some kind of completely different understanding. This is not a code to be cracked. It uses words in their ordinary signification. But we can say more than that. Um, our confession has uh, a really good statement in it in um, chapter one on scripture. It says the infallible rule for interpreting scripture is the scripture itself. Um, and um, therefore, when there's a question about the true and full meaning of any part of scripture, and each passage has only one meaning, not many, very important, it must be understood in light of other passages that speak more clearly. So, um, and I had meant to advance this and I kind of, Missed that whole slide, so um, let me go on to this one. All right, so the first thing is that um, the Scripture interprets Scripture. And that especially means that the New Testament, which is uh, more advanced, fuller, uh, clearer than the Old Testament, interprets the Old Testament. Okay, um, and, it, and the... Benediction that Brandon read this morning talks about the mystery of being revealed. It's as though it was, you know, hidden in shadowy language in the Old, Old Testament. And now it's crystal clear. And so the New Testament it should give priority to interpreting the Old Testament. Um, and second of all, um, there is one meaning to each passage. Now that one meaning may be very rich. And it may have depth to it, but it's still one meaning that all kind of connection relates together. Um, the second thing that we that we believe about the Bible is it's a supernatural book. And that's what distinguishes it from saying that it should be interpreted like any other book. The meaning of a text is not what you think it means. And it's not even what the human author thought it meant in terms of exhausting the meaning of the passage. It's what God intended it to mean. Remember that the, the, there are two authors, in a sense, in, to each scripture. There's a human author who has limited understanding, and there's God who has ultimate understanding. And in fact, in 1 Peter 1.10, we see this idea, I think, communicated clearly. 1 Peter 1.10, don't turn there, says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, they were writing some things down 
And then they had to study them to understand what they meant. It was beyond their own understanding, the things that they were writing down. And we need to understand that the, the depths of whatever Scripture says is beyond the depths of what the human writer necessarily understood in writing it down. So the Bible is not like the newspaper. It's not like a novel. It's not like a history book in that sense. No other book can claim that the meaning goes beyond what the hum human author intended. Calvin says on this passage, the prophets minister to us more abundantly than to their own age and that this was revealed to them from above. For in Christ only is the full exhibition of those things of which God then presented, but an obscure image. Okay. Uh, third point is that the, the proper interpretation of Scripture is taught to us by divine revelation. We don't assume our own principles based on our own reasoning. And I think this is a key problem with dispensationalism. That even though it was in, in so many ways it was adopted as a, as a defense against modernism and rationalism, I think that, that in a sense it bought into rationalism and said that with our own minds we can understand the, the text apart from the, um, the, t the teaching and revelation of God in how we should do that. The, uh, so the proper method of interpretation is taught to us just like the doctrine of salvation is taught to us in Scripture. And the way we learn that is by studying how the New Testament interprets the Old Testament or how the prophets interpret the earlier uh, uh, revelation of God in the Old Testament. So we can learn that from many examples in the New Testament in terms of how to understand the Old Testament. Okay. Um, God communicated to Abraham himself uh, in, uh, through some uh, types and shadows. Um, we, we learn that through, even through his own um, life experience, he taught about two contrasting covenants, Ishmael and Isaac. He communicated the gospel to Abraham through the figure of a promised offspring. We don't ever see in Genesis um, God saying, I'm going to send a Savior who will justify and sanctify you. Um, we don't see it laid out quite like that. But what we do, we are told in Galatians 3 is that the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. See, that passage apparently has more depth of meaning than you might think just at a superficial reading. Okay. We could, we could see that um, he, God communicated the hope of a heavenly city to Abraham by promising him an earthly land. That's very clear in Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Now, Abraham understood that that's what God was teaching him through these promises. That's not a New Testament passage changing the meaning. That's Abraham's understanding of the meaning. Okay, um, so that's about all I can say uh, right now. Why does it matter? Uh, the, I believe that God's glory is demonstrated um, ultimately in Christ and in his redemption of the church, which is the, the truest expression of God's people um, in the new covenant. 
Um, for we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. To separate um, and, and in many ways to put an emphasis on Israel over the church is, I think, uh, ultimately damaging to the work of Christ and the glory of Christ in the church. Um, also, um, I just noticed in the, on the bulletin here, we read this morning as our call to worship. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. Now, if we can't read that and see a call to us as the new covenant people of God, we are impoverishing ourselves in terms of, of the beauty and comfort of the Old Testament revelation. But I think we all read that and, and were encouraged to come before the Lord that he had called us because Israel and the church are not entirely distinct. When he, called, when he says, I've chosen Jacob for myself, Israel is my own possession, that we can see that both as, a, as, as the caterpillar, you know, and we're the butterfly, or we can see it as kind of a, a type of and we're the reality. Either way, it, it helps us to, to come before God and encourages us with that. So um, I do think these things are important in terms of hearing God speak to us in his word. Okay, so we can talk about this some more this evening if, if we want to do that. So I um, hope we can do that. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, there's uh, much here to say and discuss and think about, and, and, and I, I'm sure that some of us have been deeply influenced by dispensationalism and dispensational teachers, and uh, some of this may come as a, as a concern or as a, uh, a difficulty and may, maybe not easy to, to hear. And so, Father, I ask that you would work grace in our hearts and that you would uh, grant us humility as we as we uh, wrestle with your word, we, we do recognize these are difficult things. We, we also want to uh, honor those who have taught us. And, uh, and we thank you, Father, for, for the way that you uh, work beyond all of our weaknesses and, uh, and, and assure us and strengthen us with the teaching and preaching of God's word. I ask, Father, that you would help us to gain greater, greater clarity on this and that we would truly uh, be able to, to receive your word as you've intended it for us and that we would see uh, the, the great glory of Christ in his accomplishments in the church. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, there's all the others. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Grace Heritage Church meets in Auburn, Alabama. Services are held at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning at 1345 Antelou Drive, 